judge a person and it turns out you didn't have the whole story? Ever learn there was a lot more to that story than you first realized? I'm Kimberly. And I'm Rebecca. Join us as we separate the little lies from the big reputations. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back. All right. We, it, it's only been two weeks for you, but it's been quite a minute for us. Um, yeah, a right. Month? I don't Three know. Three weeks? I don't What's know. A while. What is time? But where were you? Why were we not recording? Um, There's your I, reasons and my reasons. <laughs> yeah, I was like, don't blame me. Um, I was in Wisconsin. Um, one of my best friends lives in Milwaukee, and I like to try and go visit her and her friends. And it was a good time. We went to the Wisconsin State Fair. Um, I didn't right. eat anything crazy. There were lots of things. And I was just like, this is like the most low-key state fair. We did like lots of animal things. So there was pig racing. <laughs> there was um, a rabbit rally where rabbits had to like jump and do like this little obstacle course. I was just thinking of them with like sag after signs. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> they want equal wages. Protesting I mean, these rabbits, rabbits. should be paid more probably they worked really really hard um but we did like cutesy farm stuff and there were lots of like weird foods and we were just like "Mm, the line is just too long for that like there was a savory pickle donut that i wanted to try oh the line was just too long yeah sometimes it's just like is it worth the wait like i find that with the street fairs here i'm like first of all the streets are already crowded Mm -hmm. and then you're trying to get me in this line that like wraps around four different ways nope i yeah i don't want anything off the street that bad <laughs> and i'm not a crowd person like i learned like we were just like mm, no this is my limit like once it started to get like we got there probably like around 11 in the morning and once it started to get like kind of crowded around like two three we're like okay time to go i had um some like amazing cherry slush okay made from like cherry growers like they had cherry everything at this stand and i was just like i would like a cherry slush um and then i had deep fried pickle slices yeah and those were kind of life-changing i feel like i could probably get them here like i feel like that's not like the slices the round ones or yeah okay yeah yeah no my my sister carrie loves fried pickles that's like her go-to bar snack (laughs) yeah i'm like i don't know what bar has these things but it feels like maybe i just have missed it i think burger even makes them really maybe don't Tell quote me, me on that. Burger. <laughs> I love Bear Burger. So there should be more Bear Burgers around. I would go. Yeah. Check yeah. it out again. We, we we went to, so my nephew is here visiting this week. And um, one of the days we went to Coney Island. Mm. And we got there at like nine. And they're like, oh, you know, no lifeguards on duty until 10 or whatever. Yeah. Um, so it was very quiet. And um we, we were there for a little bit and then it decided to rain on us. So we had to s- get cover. <laughs> and my nephew was like, well, we're already wet from the water. What's the big deal? And I'm like, well, the towels will get wet. That's the big deal. So he's like, you oh, went in the water um, up to my knees. But he Oof. went in like all the way. Oh, God. You're going to send him home a mutant. <laughs> I don't trust that water. I haven't been in that water in a very long time. And that's why it was kind of nice to be there before everybody got there. By the time yes. we left around 11, um, it was starting to get a lot mm. more crowded. There were more people coming in with all their stuff. But it was real nice, like, early like that. We we s- walked into Luna Park, but then we were like, hmm, yeah, no. 
But it's weird because they have this like pass at Luna Park, which for people who don't know is the like the amusement park stuff mm-hmm. at Coney Island that you think of. But it seemed like only like five or ten rides were open. I don't know if more of them open later in the day or There's what. Like, but. So I went to Coney Island like literally a couple of days before I went to Wisconsin and we went to the aquarium and then to that park. There's like two separate parks. There's like a park that just has like kid stuff and then like right next to it they have like Luna Park. And I think Luna Park only has like whatever that the staple chase or whatever the big the big roller coaster uh-huh and then like wonder wheel and then like something else and i think everything else is like little kid rides but I it know. is separate okay because i know sean went there once and he said it was like pay per ride but i also yes. saw they have like a an everything pass that you can get yeah it's it's separate though i don't know what they call the littler park but i do remember like i have a card and I was like, oh, I should bring that in case we go. But I didn't think we were going to go. But we ended up going. And it was like the section we were in was like all little kid rides. So I like oh. just sat on the bench and waited for everything to be done. But I did have a corn dog. Well, there you go. Yes. Oh, and I also <laughs> had a corn dog in Wisconsin. Me and my husband split a 12 inch corn dog. That's a really large corn dog. It was huge because we were like, well, it probably like is the same price as buying two small corn dogs. And they're like fresh. Yeah, so I did that. There you go. There you go. What else? Anything else going on? Um, nothing. Just things I've seen on the interwebs. Like, are you following this Lizzo lawsuit? Do you know anything about it? Yes, yes. Um, it makes me sad. I don't know a ton of details about it. I just saw sort of the initial mm-hmm. lawsuit about like body shaming and um, like sexual harassment and that sort of thing. Uh, But I didn't look a lot deeper into it yet. Oh, so I did. Because I was like, well, I'm a Lizzo fan. And this is like crazy. So like I did like a lot of research into it. And it's it's weird because like a lot of the points are like valid. The most valid point that I think there is is the sexual harassment, which basically stems from her taking her dancers to a German sex club, which kind of feels more along the lines of not knowing the line between like friend and boss because you cannot do that with your employee. Like, that's right. insane to do. And I think that that line got blurred. The other things that I was reading, it kind of feels like is a bit of a reach. I read part of the court document because I got stuck on a very long flight. <laughs> so I was just reading everything. And the court document for the um, the body shaming is, oh, we're not going to talk about this all day, but it just, um, it was a lot of the girls inferred things based on things that they heard. So like Lizzo's team was like, hey, you don't seem like yourself. Is everything okay? And the girls were like, oh no, everything's totally fine. And they were offered um, like some time off and like mental therapy. And the girls were like, well, if I pick that, then I'm going to get fired. So I won't. And then they just continued working like exhausted. And there was a, the girls went on, I guess the defendants? No. The plaintiffs. They went on TMZ, which seems like a really big mistake because just in interviews, they like contradicted a lot of things that are in the court case. Hmm. It's weird. It's like they like they were like, oh, you know, did you feel that Lizzo was like body shaming you? And it was like, no, we were fired for different reasons. And it's like, why did your lawyer let you do this? Like, it feels like it's getting very, very messy. But I think my biggest issue and takeaway from it is people who are like, I always knew Lizzo was shit. I always knew she was trash. And it's like, why? 
Like, why did you always think that? And like, it feels like people are waiting to write her off or to cancel her. Mm -hmm. And I think that the biggest thing that I'm seeing from it where people are so shocked and surprised that like, she might not be nice, that she might be a bitch. And like, she's absolutely allowed to be a bitch. Yeah. I think that, I mean, honestly, as a black woman and especially a black woman in a larger body, she probably mm-hmm. had to be to get where she is. Right. Well, like, no, is so it the, because of the way that the, the power structure above her works. Right. Uh-huh. That, that Like, I'm not saying you have to be a bitch to get somewhere in life. I'm mm-hmm. saying that like th- there's an extra battle that she has to, to fight or extra battles that she had to fight to get where she was that maybe like a Taylor Swift doesn't have to necessarily. I think it's kind of the opposite for Lizzo. I feel like the fans that she's gotten, she's gotten them by being like so relatable and sickeningly sweet and like always doing things. And uh, the criticisms that I've heard before of Lizzo from people, especially from black women is that she kind of comes off as a bit of like a mammy figure and I kind of agree. So I like the fact that she might actually be a bitch who doesn't stand up for like nonsense around her because it kind of feels like everything that she's done has been to be like kind of cutesy to the public. Oh, okay. And if this is like, oh, that was an act and she's actually kind of a bitch and like demands respect from people, then I actually appreciate that more. There's lots of other artists who um, are really tight with like, what their dancers do and really strict with their dancers. Like Beyonce is one of them. Beyonce like cuts people from her dance team constantly, but no one would call it fat shaming. Right. It just, it feels like there's a double standard because she's a person in a bigger body. We need to hold her to a standard of, she has to be nicer. She has to be kind, but like, does she? And I think that that's, that's the, uh, the conversation that I'm interested in having maybe well, in a longer episode too. at some point. Yeah. It's like, it's not about the size of the body. It's about what you can do with whatever body you have. And can yes. you do the dance? Mm-hmm. Right. I think that's, I mean, she can do those dances. So it doesn't make sense to me. Like that part always, that's the part that had me going, what? Yeah. Right. So I don't know. I, I guess we'll have to see how some of this stuff starts evolving. Yeah. I just, I wonder, I mean, the more I hear about it, the more, Her part of the case seems like it's not as strong as she had someone working for her who was like a very, very strong Christian lady who would like call these girls out are not being Christian enough. That seems like that's going to be an issue. But that wasn't Lizzo. That was like someone working for her. Right, right. But because she's like the brand above that. I got you. So she's getting the the flack for it. And there's just also been like a lot of people coming forward to be like. I worked with her once and she wasn't nice to me. And it's like, okay, like, I don't, that's not going to sway me. Like, because someone wasn't nice to you. Like, people don't, women don't owe you kindness at all. And I feel like that's a, that's a trap completely. Okay. Like, we're supposed to be nice all the time. Like, that's yeah, such a yeah. trap. Yeah, no, for sure. You're absolutely yeah. right there. That, so no. I feel like it needs to, like, work itself out legally. But there are people who are dunking on Lizzo just because like they've been waiting to dunk on Lizzo. And I don't think that that's, that's cool. yeah, that's, that's the part that's, that's not okay with me. It's like, yeah, that part, listen like and wait and see how it plays out. Don't, mm. don't suggest or allude to things that you don't know about. Yeah. Like you said, you were reading through some of these court documents and that's how you sort of came to your conclusion. 
because or, it, or the the conclusion you're up to at this point. Yeah, because part it seemed like the headlines made it seem so nasty. Like here's this fat woman being disgusted by other fat women, and I was like, mm, that doesn't sound right. Yeah, like that like if anything, if you want to be like Lizzo, like cut me off in traffic, or Lizzo told me to shut my fucking mouth, like that makes sense. But like the other parts didn't, and like once you read like the court proceedings, it was like, oh. You're really stretching here. And like they might be it feels like they, the lawyers for the uh, plaintiffs might be like stretching for like the court of public opinion. And it's like, let's make Lizzo settle this like out of court so we don't get like more sound bites. I don't know. That's what it kind of feels like. But it also seems like the sound bites aren't helping them because like going on TMZ and like all this footage is popping up of these women that uh, they like one of the girls like tried out for like the second season of her dance show and like just praising Lizzo after she was like let go or after she had this horrible touring experience with her and it's like well did she have to say that so that she can get a job and it's like well or is she lying you know yeah and unfortunately that's not stuff we can know for certain and exactly so it just it it paints a bad light on the whole situation gotcha yeah yeah but yeah Um, I'm not I'm not just into like instant cancel culture. It's like, hey, like we said before in that last episode, believe women, but research. Yes. Like right. investigate. Yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, totally. Um, speaking of episodes, this yes. is our 50th episode. Woo. 50th episode. Like, I mean, it doesn't include the bloopers or mm-hmm. the intro or anything, but 50 topics that we have taking time to research and talk about and record and put out in the world <laughs> i'm like um, i can't believe it <laughs> we're so cool our podcast can now apply for arp right <laughs> yeah uh my nephew saw the notes for this episode he's like 50 episodes wow you've recorded a lot <laughs> how long have you been recording so we're forever a little over two years yeah that seems i feel like we should have more episodes for two years but like i guess we do it every other week so not really yeah exactly that's the thing that kind of throws it off (laughs) no but still 50 is is impressive that's a lot of research you have done the bulk of this research and now you're like super knowledgeable about all these women (laughs) oh my god so we did trivia okay so we did trivia in wisconsin and we won and it was awesome it was 90s trivia our team name, this was my friend Hannah thought this up, and I think it was so great. Our team name was Freddie Prince Jr. Sr. Like the band Jr. Sr. Okay, okay. And then Freddie Prince Jr. Yes, anyway, obviously Freddie Prince it's Jr. It's funny if you know the 90s stuff. So one of the questions was, who was the prosecutor on like the Monica Lewinsky case? And I was like, <laughs> Ken Starr. <laughs> and I was like, I know that from all my extensive research. And there was a guy playing with us that we had just met that night. And he was like, oh, you have a podcast? And I gave him a business card. Yeah, Look at me. Woo-woo. Look at me. I also left another one in the airport in Wisconsin. So I love it. Wisconsin you're is flying out of a- MKE. Occasionally, Wisconsin hits our top five for states. So, and I think it's not just Hannah. (laughs) No, no, no. There's definitely other people who listen. So I'm like very happy about that. Yes. Um, But I do wonder if, like, if you found this podcast off of a business card in the bathroom in the airport, please let us know because I would love to know if that actually worked. That would be awesome. That'd be awesome. But so that means, like, maybe a couple years from now, we'll be at a hundred episodes. We should yeah. do something huge for that. I don't like what? I don't know. Like 
have a party. <laughs> I was like, well, we can't like, I'm like, what can we do that people could hear? I like, can't do fireworks or something. I mean, we could do like a bonus episode that was just like hanging out or like people could call in or I don't know how this works. What? <laughs> Listen, we have many episodes for you to think about that plan. Yeah, exactly. Put it into exactly. uh, motion. So we should probably get to this episode so we can actually hit our 50th episode. Yeah, exactly. So today we're going to be discussing the history of women in soccer from creation till today. We'll talk about women who pioneered the sport and challenges that they faced. We will, of course, dig into, you know, the judgments, the scandals, the media coverage or, you know, the lack thereof when it comes to the women who play. We'll discuss how the double standard in comparison to the men's team can affect the sport. Lastly, we'll explore the future of soccer and the impact that women have had on the game. And we just want to put a note out there that we are recording this on August 12th, which is nine days before the World Cup final. So forgive us for not talking about who's won, but yay, winning team. Good job. Woo. Um, but we you will. did it. <laughs> you did it. Um, but we will or will maybe we already have posted about it on social media. So um, follow along there and. And see the results if you don't know them yet. <laughs> I like that we could just say congratulations, ladies, and that covers whoever. It does. It does. Boom. Um, so some trigger warnings for sexism. I think homophobia. Maybe a little bit. Yeah. 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 <laughs> sexism. I feel like trigger warning for sexism is just like this podcast. <laughs> it's, it's like life. It's waking up and going outside. Trigger warning for sexism. As we do with our big topics, sometimes mm -hmm. we discuss how, if at all, these topics have impacted us. So how about you, Kim? We're talking about women's soccer. How has that impacted you? Um, so very little. Um, <laughs> so I'm not a sports girly, but I do like group joy. So if I'm somewhere and the game is on TV, I'm like all in. I like how much people are starting to get into women's soccer. I'm like just starting to see it everywhere. Like Hulu has been, um, like not showing ads, but like, it'll be like at a, at the banner at like the top. Like whenever I go to like, look at something, it's like, Hey, there's soccer. And I'm like, Oh, good. You know, I'm going to watch one. I think I'm going to watch one. Maybe <laughs> after recording this, I'll feel like in the spirit. So I'll, the I'll spirit. be a, a bandwagoner for this one. I mean, it might be worth the, the championship game or something. Yeah. If that, that would be cool. Um, yeah, I, I've never played soccer. I was more of a sports person. Um, I play softball. I play it still. Um, there was a good like... 20 year gap in between when I played it as a teenager and when I played it again as an adult. But um, I, like, I don't even know if I ever knew what soccer was until maybe like middle school. You know, I know my high school had a team, but I couldn't tell you anything about them. Like, hmm. uh, yeah. And I was like, okay, I guess I was affected by the men's Euro cup in 2012 because so in 2012 I was studying in Spain for like a month and I happened to get there the night that Spain won the Euro cup in 2012 and my apartment was right over a bar. Oh my God. <laughs> so I did not get much sleep at all. Like imagine because I'm already kind of jet lagged. I've mm -hmm. flown in. I'm all like groggy. I'm just like not into it at all. And then I have to sleep in a new place above a bar 
in a country where people are celebrating that they just won the Euro Cup. Yeah. Were they like singing songs? I feel like there were chants and songs. There were earlier. Like that didn't mm. happen in the middle of the night where I was. That was more like nine or ten. By the time you, they were just drunk. Yeah. They were just <laughs> loud and drunk and at a bar at like 2 a.m. And I'm like, oh I God. just want to sleep. <laughs> but it, and then I was like, I might have regrets about the fact that I'm staying in this place. But it was fine after that. It was never like I never had another issue that that month. But um, and of course, like in terms of soccer, I'm going to bring up Ted Lasso here. Uh, but seriously, for me, like it was watching that show where I learned anything about like anything in terms of soccer <laughs> and like is ted lasso about soccer <laughs> i didn't know yes and no like okay so here's the thing right oh no <laughs> no no <laughs> it'll be quick i promise what have i done <laughs> it it is about a guy who coaches soccer but like there's hardly any soccer in each episode <laughs> that's funny like not even like practice there's some practice but i would say like if the episode so the episode lengths change, but let's say a 45 minute episode, mm -hmm. I'd say probably like five to max 10 minutes are about soccer. <laughs> the wow. rest is the, the storyline around it. So, um, yeah, no, my knowledge is like next to nothing, but researching for this episode, I definitely learned quite a few cool things. And the one thing I do know for sure is that women's soccer is superior to men's soccer. Okay, so let's go way back in history. Let's start with the word soccer itself. And we're going to use soccer because we're Americans. So <laughs> that's what we call it here. Sorry, everyone else. But also the word soccer actually comes from England. And it was used interchangeably with the word football until like the 1980s when they decided that they didn't want to be associated with America. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's fine. Fair. It's funny because we're the ones who like got rid of them. <laughs> like, <laughs> Listen... Sometimes you let things go. <laughs> <laughs> so over here we were using, they started using football exclusively and we still call it soccer. Yeah. Th so there are various forms of football around the world, including gridiron football, which is like what we call American football, um, rugby football, and associated football, which is what becomes soccer, right? So back in the day, the Brits would shorten the word associated to, and I'm not sure how they pronounce this, a soch, a soak. I, I don't know. Then they were like, oh, they kind of made it into a verb. So they'd be like a soaker. And then it just somehow shortened itself into soccer. So a soccer, uh, whatever. It feels this like is, fetch. Right? This like, is their word, though. Like, this is not our word. We didn't make up the word soccer. This came from them, and they try to pin it on us all the time. Like, we just made <laughs> up some word. <laughs> anyway, um, so that's why we're going to use the word soccer. Yes, we mm -hmm. are Americans, and that was that's how we're going to differentiate it from the other forms of football. Some of the earliest forms of kicking a ball as a team seem to come from 2nd and 3rd century in China, and there were other early forms of the game in Japan, Greece, and Rome as well. It has also been noted that unofficial gatherings of women playing a variation of the sport were recorded in the 12th century in France and in the 18th century in Scotland. So according to the, and here we go with my French, the Fédération Internationale de Football Association, 
Yeah, that was more like Spanish. It was. (laughs) You'll take it. It had some sort of an accent. I wouldn't Uh, even have known it was French if you didn't say it. Yeah, exactly. That's how bad my French is. (laughs) You have to go, huh? Huh. Federacion. Yeah. (laughs) Internacional. (laughs) No, anyway, uh, that's French for International Association Football Federation, also known as FIFA. So according to them, modern soccer began in England in 1863 with the founding of the Football Association, or the FA. Soccer was played in England before the founding of the FA, but having an official governing body helped establish the rules that we're using today. FIFA itself was founded in 1904 in Paris and is the international governing body of association football, a.k.a. soccer. So women's soccer. Women's soccer can be traced back to 1869. This was the year when Harper's Bazaar published a watercolor painting called Girls of the Period, Playing Ball, an image of a handful of women in elaborate dresses trying to control a ball. It's likely nothing official and more just a friendly uh, kickabout, as it would have been called, apparently. Just let's have a kickabout. (laughs) That's funny. That sounds like a hang, a kickabout. Yeah, a kickabout. Um, But anyway, it's still proof that women were playing soccer from the very beginning, along with men. It wasn't something that they like picked up later. While the Scottish Football Association recorded a women's match in 1892, the match that is mostly commonly referred to as the first official match between women's teams was played on March 23rd in 1895 in England. This is the same year that the British Ladies Football Club was founded by Nettie Honeyball. So fun fact about Nettie Honeyball. Not her real name, although I kind of wish it were. Like Honeyball is a great last name. That is a great last name for someone who like started playing soccer first. Like exactly, Uh, but apparently her real name is actually lost to history. There were like contradicting, um, like I don't know what the word is. Like people were speculating Um, on what it is. I wonder if it was just some douchey guy that was like, look at that honey with a ball, Honeyball, and like that's how it got. Like now I don't like it. Well, now. But <laughs> I like it. I'm if, sure. she, if she determined it, I like it. That, that's I, all that matters. I hope so. So the first official match had over 10,000 people in attendance and was played between a team from northern and southern England. The North won 7-1. to one. And that seems like such a high score. So for those yeah, who don't right? follow soccer, like their games are pretty low score most of the time. Like anything mm-hmm. above like three goals is a big deal, I think. I think. The North always be winning. The North always be winning. (laughs) (laughs) By 1902, the British Football Association prohibited their member clubs from playing against the ladies' teams and discouraged women from playing altogether. That is, until World War I. The men were sent off to war, and the role of women in society shifted, not only in the workplace, but also on the pitch, a.k.a. the field. War. Huh. What is it good for? Women's liberation. Kind of always. (laughs) Yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, Uh, Once again, women's soccer took off in England. These games were initially played to raise money for the war efforts and involved domestic and international competitions. By the end of the war, the number of women's teams across the country had drastically increased and their games attracted large crowds. The most successful team of the era was a team called the Dick Kerr Ladies which I don't like the name of, but anyway. The team was formed by the manufacturing company that the ladies worked for in England. 
In April of 1920, they played one of the first women's international matches against a French team with a crowd of over 20,000 people in the stands. They also made up most of the English team that played against Scotland in the in the same year, winning 22 to zero. Like now, I we just, just talked bad. about, right? Like what? Go home. Like that's embarrassing. 22 to zero. I just yeah, I I kind of pity them. <laughs> that Poor same Scotland. Year. Yeah. Right. Uh, that same year, on December 26, Boxing Day, the Dick Kerr ladies played the St. Helens ladies at Goodison Park. This game attracted over 53,000 people. So women's soccer was attracting a lot of attention, and by the end of the year, more attention than the men's teams were getting. The FA would not stand for it. So they came up with a solution. I just, we're going to get to the solution, but I just picture, like, a bunch of men, like, pouting around. Have you seen that? It's a gif of... Emma Watson and she's like pouting and she like stomps her foot and just like has like a really pouty face on. <laughs> I don't remember what show it's from. I had to try and find it, but I just feel like a bunch of guys are like, mm, why are more people watching the girls team? We're big and strong. Mm, like just like very mad about it. And yes. it makes me, yes. it makes me laugh. So in 1921, the FA banned women's teams from playing on league grounds. Basically, if they wanted to play, they had to find a park. Despite the ban, some continue, Some teams continued to play, even sometimes using rugby rounds for some of their games. The league struggled, but continued without FA support. Well, of course, they never would have admitted to this. It was suggested that the ban was motivated by a perceived threat to the masculinity of the game and a general feeling of jealousy. Hmm, your image mm. doesn't seem so off. <laughs> but we play the ball sports. We're the men. Stop. The FA had no control over the money made from the women's games and even released the following statement to try to stop the women from playing. They said, Complaints have been made as to football being played by women. The council feel compelled to express their strong opinion that the game is quite unsuitable for women and ought to be discouraged. Complaints from who? From whom? <laughs> whom, sir? Cite your source. Me who is and my buddies. <laughs> Me and my guys are really mad because, like, no one comes to our games. Whatever. So banning women's soccer was not unique to England. The German Football Association banned women's soccer from 1955 until 1970. They were really late on the ban, I feel like. Well, not really. Because France also banned the sport from 1941 to 1970. And in Brazil, the military dictatorship legally prohibited women and girls from playing soccer from 1941 until 1979. Yeah, this like post-World War II era was was pretty rough on women and, and sports. But I mean, if you think about it, well, like... Baseball would have been the equivalent in the U.S., right? And women's yeah. baseball had went through the same issues. True. And I don't think baseball is that big overseas. Like, I think no. that's just an American thing. Right. Yeah. I'm just saying, like, I think that would be our equivalent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in the 1970s, international women's tournaments were extremely popular. And the AFC Women's Asian Cup, the oldest surviving continental championship, was founded. In 1971, the FA lifted the ban so women could play on league grounds again. Oh, thanks. You're so kind. Mm-hmm. But it really wasn't until 1990 when the FA coaching and development of the women's game took off. FIFA also had a problem with women's soccer. They didn't even allow a woman to speak at the FIFA Congress until 1986. And the first official FIFA World Cup, played in China in 1991, didn't take place for another five years. 
But the women didn't need FIFA. In 1970, the Federation of Independent European Female Football ran their own World Cup in Italy, entirely free from FIFA's involvement. Denmark won. A year later, in 1971, Mexico hosted the event. Denmark won again. Damn, Denmark. (laughs) (laughs) This time it was against the home team in the largest stadium in North America. So they were filling up seats. Mm -hmm. They had a crowd of approximately 110,000 fans. That's pretty huge. Damn. Oh, nobody watches soccer. But like they all showed up for this thing. Right? In person. Yeah. (laughs) It wasn't like it was televised worldwide. Exactly. So FIFA was all bitchy and basically ignored women's soccer until 1988 with the FIFA Women's International... No. Invitational. Invitational. Yeah. Until There's so many night- freaking like long ass titles. <laughs> they really are. There was one I found that was like World International Women's something like presented by like M&Ms and I was like what the fuck is this? Yeah. <laughs> like, no, we're going to I was like I got to go. <laughs> So FIFA basically ignored women's soccer until 1988 with the FIFA's Women's Invitational Tournament in China. So going back to the 1991 World Cup for a moment, it was won by the United States. The runners-up were Norway, who won the next championship in 1995. Four years later, in 1999, the U.S. won again. Germany won the following two championships in 2003 and 2007. Japan won in 2011, and the U.S. took the title in 2015 and 2019. The U.S. does not take the cup this year. We already know that much. They have been eliminated um, from this year's cup they lost. I only know because the way that that story was marketed was like, Trump makes fun of U.S. team for losing. And I was like, are you from here? Like, what do you mean? Why would you be making fun of us? (sighs) It's so weird. I hate Thanks, this world. <laughs> I know. It was just like, I don't I don't know why anybody cares what Trump thinks about. I I don't know if he could play a sport. Like, I mean, I just, I don't know why anybody cares. But no, no. that's how I heard. That's how I found out that they lost. Okay. Yeah. Lovely. Lovely. Mm-hmm. Good job, media. Yeah, I right? blame the media on that one. Who cares yeah, no, for sure. Him. For sure. <laughs> anyway, but as we mentioned at the beginning, as you're listening to this, we don't know, like, you know who won this year, but we don't know. Um, so... Insert congratulations to winners here. <laughs> Maybe I'll record congratulations team. And then I'll just say the name and record it. <laughs> You're not going to do that. You're not going to remember to go back and do that. So, uh, All right. Well, let's talk about the Olympics for a moment then. We mentioned that the World Cup was not formalized by FIFA until 1991, but it wasn't until 1996, 1996, that the women's team played in the Olympics. Like, let that sink in. 96, 06, 16. It hasn't even been 30 years. No. That's, that's crazy. That's wild. Um, anyway, uh, again, the U.S. has the most gold medals in this sport with four, and the most total medals with seven. The only year they did not place in the top three was 2016. Trump must have been really happy about that. That was a bad year. <laughs> I was like, 2016 was a shitty year. What happened? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Anyway, let's not just talk about America because soccer is a global sport. So let's take a quick look at women's soccer around the world. I feel like the image of like a world spinning interview. (laughs) If we had like a YouTube channel, we would like have an image of the globe. Around the world. 
gold and it's a globe. <clears throat> anyway, so let's start with Asia. The Asian football, Jesus Christ, these names. <laughs> <laughs> right. The Asian, the Asian football confederation, confederation, no, the Asian football confederation's women's Asian cup is the oldest women's international soccer competition. There's also a women's cup for teams in the South Asian football federation. India won the first five times and Bangladesh is the current champion. They defeated Nepal three to one in September of, the, of 2022. Looking to East Asia, Japan became the first country to have a semi-professional women's league. It started in 1989 and still exists today. In 2020, the country also established the first ever women's professional league in Asia, the WE League, or the Women's Empowerment League, which began playing the following fall. The Chinese Women's Premier Football League was initiated in 1997. From 2011 to 2014, the league was named the Women's National Football League, but in 2015, it was relaunched as Chinese Women's Super League. I like that. <laughs> they upgraded. They're like, Premier? No. Super. Super League. Super League. And in Southeast Asia, we can look at Indonesia's Women's League. The first national championship was the Kartini Cup in 1981. Today, they battle for the Per Cup. Moving on to Europe. While there were championship competitions in Europe as early as 1969, they were not officially recognized by the Union of European Football Associations until 1984. It had some long convoluted name before, like... Many of these seem to. Yeah. Uh, but it is now commonly known as the UEFA Women's Euro. Winners over the years have included Sweden, Norway, the Netherlands, England, and Germany with eight wins for Germany. Also, fun fact, Italy was the first country to import foreign players from other European countries into their league, including women from Denmark, Scotland, Ireland, and Spain. Does that mean that Italy is not a good team? And they had to, like, outsource? I, I mean, I don't know. So, like, like Lionel Messi just came to the U.S. to play for MLS in oh, Miami, yeah. right? Like, they, I think they just, like, recruited players from around. So, I don't know if they just okay. were good or if they were just, I don't know. Looking to make a change. Okay. Yeah. Fair. Fine. Um, and finally, on Europe, Sweden was the first country to introduce a professional women's domestic league in 1988. So the Oceania Football Confederation, not like confederation, but whatever, hosts the Women's National Cup for the national teams who are part of the OFC. It serves as a qualifying tournament for the FIFA World Cup. Australia specifically has the W League, which was formed in 2008. W I League. Guess That's I assume good. it's W for women. Is it is the M League for men or is it just like the league? Yeah, right. That's the true mm. question. Explain yourself, Australia. I'm getting all <laughs> up. I have no clue. They could be like, yeah, we do. It, it is M for men and W for women. And they're paid equally. And I'd be like, I'm sorry, Australia. Uh, you know what? Australia is like, well, no, New Zealand, I would trust more to do something like yeah. that. <laughs> all I know about Australia is they've got weird bakery things and huge spiders i know that yeah i was gonna say i know they have giant animals that will like destroy you because they're they're like the most poisonous animals in yeah. the world <laughs> and they're all like massive and like whenever i'm on tiktok i like i sometimes get on like australian tiktok people are just like oh yeah there is a a spider the size of a puppy in my room i'm just gonna like go handle that and i'm just like yo australians are built differently and I don't think I want to go there. Like, I want to, but I also don't think I could deal. Like, if there was a bug like that in my room, 
oh god my hotel no, it's room. over it's over yeah I'm right they, they're not gonna refund me but i'm gonna be like I'm, i had to burn the place down because this bug was massive <laughs> like i should just not go because i know i can't handle it australia you are stronger than me all right so moving on to south america the main competition between national teams in women's soccer is the copa america femenina which is for teams affiliated with the south american football confederation often referred to as conmebol conmebol <laughs> i guess i don't like it <laughs> like seriously this is one thing latin america is really good at this they make acronyms out of everything and they'll be like oh That's- you need a vowel here let's just like make it longer and like we'll put some of the word in right because it's the the confeder because it would be the confederacion um americano they football or something i don't know and mm-hmm. so they're like yeah we're gonna put me in it um there is also the copa libra Libertadores Femenina, which is the international club competition for women from these same countries. And in the Middle East and North Africa, you know, we've got a few things as well. Until 2020, only Morocco, Tunisia, Egypt, Algeria, Palestine, Turkey, Jordan, Iran, Libya, Syria, and Israel, which sounds like a lot, but really isn't, uh, had national teams and large-scale competitions. Since then, other countries such as Saudi Arabia, Oman, Qatar, Somalia, Mauritania, and Sudan have begun to develop soccer teams in order to raise their international profiles. Many of these teams face discrimination due to conservative and religious views on women in soccer in their own countries. If you thought the name Call Me Ball was interesting, North America also has a fun acronym for the regional league, CONCACA which stands for the Confederation of North Central America and Caribbean Association Football. Their women's championship competition serves as the qualifying competition to both the World Cup and the Olympics. And beginning in 2024, the Women's Gold Cup will be a new tournament featuring 12 national teams, eight from the region and four from Conmebol region. <laughs> this is so ridiculous. Like, I soccer, know. why? Why are you soccer? <laughs> I don't know. I, oh, they just make it so difficult. I guess because it's so international. Like, everybody has to have their own thing. Yeah. So, in the U.S. in particular, soccer gained popularity as an intercollegiate sport with club teams appearing in the 1970s and varsity teams being established in the 1980s, with Brown being the first college to grant this status to their women's soccer team. Way to go, Brown. Yeah. In 1985, the U.S. women's national soccer team was formed, and following the 1999 FIFA World Cup, the first professional women's soccer league was formed. It lasted three years. Wow. The second attempt, the Women's Professional Soccer League, was made in 2009, but it only lasted until 2011. Okay. (laughs) What's going on? Um, I think the people who have the money are probably men. Hmm. Uh, That's my guess. But um, in 2012, the National Women's Soccer League was launched with initial support from soccer federations in the U.S., Canada and Mexico. And that's the one that still plays today. Mm -hmm. Speaking of Mexico, the Liga Mexicana Femenil was launched in 2017 and broke several attendance records. And in Canada, the women's national team won the gold medal at the 2020 Olympics in Canada. So way back in 1894, when Nettie Honeyball, 
if that was her real name, which it wasn't, <laughs> was trying to recruit other ladies to form to a newly formed British ladies football club. The press was not too kind. A number of newspapers and journals reported on the game, usually being overly critical or sometimes even flat out sarcastic. With the exception of one newspaper, The Sportsman, writers there said, I don't think the lady footballer is to be snuffed out by a number of leading articles written by old men. If the lady footballer dies, she will die hard. All right. That person gets it. Right? Probably a woman writing under a man's name. (laughs) I was about to say, it definitely wasn't a woman, but maybe... Maybe she was writing her husband's column because he was drunk or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The media and press of the time looked at women's football as a novelty and mostly focused their stories on what women wore. Of course. The men showed up to games out of curiosity and maybe to catch a glimpse of a titillating ankle. Mm-hmm. Around the time of women's football being banned, the media was on a bit of a smear campaign. The war was over and women needed to go back to doing womanly things. But some leaned into work and having a social life. How dare they? <laughs> it all sounds very familiar if you're a fan of uh, a league of their own. <laughs> yes. <laughs> These women or when, when you talked about pants. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, Just, that's when I was like, oh, that's why I made that joke about like, What's war good for? Like, women be able to do shit. Because, like, they went to jobs and they were like, oh, I can have pants and a wallet and, like, have money. And I like being able to leave my house and not have to tell this dude where I'm going all the time. Mm -hmm. Maybe we should keep doing more of that. Well, these women, these women, these these newly liberated women went as far as to cut their hair short. (gasps) Scandal. The Mm -hmm. press considered it a form of rebelling as these women also smoked and dressed in a masculine manner. By 1921, women footballers had become the counterculture, entering the moral panic from the more conservative parts of society. Their world was changing, and they didn't like it, so they started fear-mongering. Hmm. That sounds so familiar. It's like something just never changed. So the media started the narrative that women's football clubs were breeding grounds for lesbian action. (gasps) Not lesbians in sports. What? (laughs) So there may have been a lesbian or two. I mean, probably. I mean, definitely. Yeah. (laughs) But the press claimed that playing the sport would cause same-sex relationships. Right. Of course. Obviously. As we said, yeah. As we said earlier, these teams are raising money, popularity, and clearly haters. The government got involved and claimed that women were unsuitable for soccer. They got doctors to report that medically, soccer was dangerous. They even got some female doctors to go on record. One, Dr. Ethel Williams, was supportive of female participation in sport, but said, I've always been sorry that they had taken to football instead of taking up some more suitable games. My eyes are rolling out of my head right now. Um, Other doctors determined soccer to, quote, be a most unsuitable game and too much for a woman's physical frame. I wonder what the other suitable games were, like the game of laundry. Like what games? Maybe like croquet maybe that's about as like like, wild as you get like all games are pretty physical like all sports games i mean you don't you don't have to like like baseball you're not hitting into people but like you're running you're you're all physical i mean i sweat every time i play (laughs) and it's not just because it's 90 degrees out i swear So after the Football Association banned women from playing, the women didn't really stop playing. The games just weren't sanctioned and the press just stopped paying attention. By the time 1971 rolled around, women were still playing banned soccer and they worked their way to the World Cup game. The game, as we mentioned before, was to be played in Mexico and the press was 
excited. The New York Times printed an article titled, Soccer Goes Sexy South of the Border. <sighs> Women's World Cup aimed at the two passions of men. I am like pulling my eyebrows out. <laughs> I'm like... <laughs> I doubled. I was like, is this the New York fucking times? And it's like, yes, it was. It was a different time then. But I feel like they need to apologize. It was I don't know if they have. I don't feel like that was different enough. You know, like I, don't, I was, feel like but it wasn't. I feel like the 2000s were a different fucking time, too. Like, Fair. I think that we've come really, really far. Not to say that this is OK, because clearly it's not. It's what we're talking about. It's not OK. But I feel like no one would have batted an eye in 1971. Like, this was probably no, totally. so normal. But I just think that it's disgusting that it was so normal. But, like, things that we did in the 2000s was, like, super normal. But, like, was it? it? Wasn't. No. Yeah. Like, we've just come so far as a society. And it's it's good to know how shitty we could have been. <laughs> <laughs> like we're not this terrible anymore and i hope so, that they look back on us like 50 years from now and go like wow i'm glad we're not as terrible as they were in right? the 2020s <laughs> oh my god keep evolving for the better so it seems that the goal of the organizers for this event and the press uh was their goal to capitalize on the two things that men loved most sexy ladies and soccer the article is dismissive and spends a lot of time speaking of the players as eye candy. The game, on the other hand, was huge. It had over 110,000 fans watching the final game between the host nation Mexico and Denmark at the Azteca Stadium. But almost every bit of media coverage of women's soccer in the early 1970s was tainted with misogyny. Oh, uh, pretends to be shocked, GIF. <laughs> oh, it, this went beyond the sanctioned World Cup. The marketing, the press, even promoters for games presented the players as sex symbols. Any kind of press these women got was sexist. Called in for an interview and photo shoot, the player was expected to talk about her sex life and pose in a short skirt to get any coverage. Like, what? So I'm not going to share these pictures because I thought they were really gross. But when I was like researching for this, like it was like a radio host holding like a soccer ball and girls wearing, like, really short skirts just, like, standing around them. There's, like, I guess coaches, like, on the sidelines, like, lifting the girls up, but really just, like, clearly grabbing for, like, thigh meat. Like, Ew. it just is, it's gross. And I'm like, I'm not sure. If you want to Google it and look look them up, you can. But, like, they're just, like, really sexist images. And I, like, these women were, you know, playing their fucking hearts out, clearly. And they had to deal with this. And it's really frustrating to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a 1970s write-up on a friendly, which is called a game. Yeah, it's just like, like it's it a means game, that, game. Right. It's a game that's not worth like it doesn't count against you in your like in your it's standings. For funsies. Yes, exactly. It's just a friendly <laughs> match. They should have called it funsies, but they call it a friendly. So this friendly was between France and Rome, and they played in New York City, and the New York Times wrote, Women's liberation took a long kick forward. <laughs> the story wrote about how the majority of fans cheered at every silly little thing the girls did during the game. That is a quote. Okay, so at first I was like, oh, right, well, that title's better than the last title, but then that mm -hmm. line, like, what? <laughs> no. There must have just been like one sports guy who was losing his goddamn mind about women playing soccer <laughs> on the New York Times team who was just like, these silly little bitches are playing my game and I am going to write them down forever. Yeah. Because silly little thing, like like kicking the ball, like scoring points. Like, what do you, what's silly? 
Oh, okay. So the press was filled with false concerns about like rules changing. News outlets shared worries about the changing of using lighter balls, smaller fields, and shorter matches. You're doing away with the phrase like ungentlemanly like conduct in lieu of something like unladylike conduct. Oh, yeah. We can't use two different words. No. How but dare. like all of this, none of this was real. Like these concerns about lighter balls and smaller fields to trying to accommodate women, they, they weren't real. They were just a way for men to dismiss women's soccer as a legitimate sport. These women didn't need smaller courts or smaller balls. Like they were doing the same thing. Without... Yeah, they've been playing on the, the, <laughs> yeah. the other pitches forever. So, yeah. Ugh. This behavior wasn't hidden from the players either. They were subjected to it if the press actually managed to show up to a game. One player, Bearbell Wolheben, was the first Germans women's football champion and first woman to win the award Goal of the Month in 1974, was asked by a reporter if she was worried about messing up her hair when she went for a header. Ugh. I'm like <laughs> groans. I hate everything here. Yes. So finally, in 1995, women were given the validity they deserved. Women's soccer was no longer banned, but now under the umbrella of FIFA. With the recogni- with that recognition came the end of the double standard and mocking by the press and the media. Right? Oh yeah, totally. That's how all of these episodes <laughs> turn out, isn't it? No. Nope. Just kidding. Uh, the press found more things to be mad about. So one of my first memories of women's soccer was when an American player, Brandy Chastain, ripped off her T-shirt after scoring like a winning penalty kick in in the 1999 Women's World Cup. Like there was so much conversation about a sports bra. So I wanted to ask about this because this is something I saw at some point. Oh, no, I think I put it in the little rep, right? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That she was like sort of the catalyst behind them making this a rule that you get a yellow card. Yeah, for... they banned anyone, male or female, taking their shirt off. Right. So they're like, the this is how we can make it not sexist. No one can take their shirt off. It's a yellow card. But that it stemmed from her doing it. And meanwhile, yeah. men had been doing it for decades. Yeah, but also like, if you'd seen it, it doesn't... She had a everyone... sports bra on underneath. It wasn't yes. like she was like flashing the world <laughs> and it wasn't like a sexy lacy sports bra she didn't take off her shirt in like a tantalizing way like it wasn't there was like nothing sexy about it like no she was just like psyched she and, was like, so passionate. happy yeah it's it's weird it's weird mm-hmm. yeah in an article titled the sports bra seen around the world has new meaning 20 years later here we go again with those titles <laughs> Yeah, oh my article God. titles and soccer acronyms all terrible <laughs> uh, well this one was written by the new york times by jere longman mm-hmm. longman described that moment saying in that pivotal moment of arrival for women's team sports in the united states and around the world viewers saw chastain removing her jersey and twirling it like a lariat spinning around and falling to her knees pumping her arms in exultant triumph What resulted was perhaps the most iconic photograph ever taken of a female athlete, a depiction of pure, spontaneous joy. And that's what it was. Yeah. 
So where some people saw pure spontaneous joy, others saw a woman trying to show off. Some reporters called it a strip tease. Other praised the game for its eye candy. Oh my god, Gross. I hate it. <laughs> a year later, FIFA formally banned the removal of jerseys by men and women during goal celebrations. Like I like they made this rule just they should just call it they should name it after her. Like they should name it the brandy rule. Like they mm-hmm. named it just for it. They decided it just for her. The chestanity so, belt. Yeah. Oh my god, that's actually really fun. <laughs> so you don't get kicked out, but like such celebrations now automatically brings a yellow card for what is considered unsporting behavior. Now I guess like a warning card. Yeah, I guess it's kind of like they do that in American football, right? With the like end zone dances. Is that? Yeah, like they can't get crazy anymore. They with can their only end do it dances. for like so long. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, this one's this one obviously stemmed from misogyny. Uh, Women have come under scrutiny in the press for being too boastful, even while keeping their shirts on. In an article titled U.S. Women's Soccer Deemed Cocky and Arrogant, thank goodness no champion has ever acted like this before. (laughs) I I want us to get back to a regular title. The titles, I get they have to be like long so people will be interested in reading them because like our attention spans are so tiny now. But I hate how long article titles are. Like, it makes citing them a pain in the ass. I know. It's so annoying. Like, it sounds like you're stopping to talk about something else. And it's like, oh, no, that's just the title of this article. Sorry. <sighs> yeah. Well, anyway, in this article with a two-line name, um, <laughs> author Bryce Phillips discusses how the world viewed the U.S. women's soccer team and how they handled their win. He points out a headline from the Daily Mail. Here we go again. World rolls its eyes as cocky U.S. team proclaim their own greatness, in all capital letters, after World Cup victory. What a bitter-ass headline. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, well, that's the Daily Mail for you. Um, Mm -hmm. The Daily Mail goes on to say the world is not happy with a group of athletes conducting themselves in such a cocky and arrogant way. So Phillips questions the motives of the Daily Mail in this article of theirs and their biggest gripes. And... They say, having defeated the Netherlands 2-0, the players were seen jumping around the dressing room and spraying each other with bottles of champagne. How dare they? What? Isn't that what, like, every sports team does when they win a championship? Like, I know you're Basically. not a big sports person, but, like, a baseball, like, locker room is, like, yeah. Spr- uh, yeah. Anyway, so like Phillips, Phillips knows what's up. Like he's clearly the sarcasm king here. He says, yes, I agree. Daily Mail. It was completely offensive of the USWNT to engage in this non-traditional celebration. The nerve of these ladies to not sit, sto- not sit stoically in the locker room, as sporting tradition dictates, is insufferable. They might as well have slapped the world directly in the face with their arrogance, champagne fueled insanity. <laughs> I, 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 I like love, this guy. I love the, I'm the up shade. For it. So first I had to Google a team that won something and I found the Houston Astros and then I Googled Houston Astros win the World Series locker room. Like I just Googled that exact phrase and there's picture after picture of men pouring beer and champagne on each other, jumping and hollering, just doing like the most and enjoying themselves and their win. But Kim, those are men. Men are allowed to do that. I'll share some of them on the Instagram. They look, it looks like a fun time. It looks like a fun, slippery time, honestly. But it just is so funny to me that like when women doing it, it's like, oh God, these women, why can't they just like quietly enjoy their win? Right. And well, and Phillips points this out too. Um, so he points out the elephant in the room. 
which is, as we all know, sexism, saying what makes the USWNT celebratory soiree such a travesty is the clear double standard perpetuated by an unfortunately vocal section of people. If these female athletes celebrating is so offensive, I want to see the same hot takes when Paul Pogba dabs at the 2022 Men's World Cup. Well, he said World Cup, but I'm saying Men's World Cup. Mm -hmm. Um, I want the same negative spin when Rob Gronkowski spikes a football so hard it reaches the Earth's core. Okay, that's giving Rob Gronkowski a lot of credit, but whatever. (laughs) Um, I want pundit diatribes against all MLB players' celebratory handshakes. If sports are officially joining the No Fun League, well, I expect to see the same outrage for all genders. Real fans of the sport can see through this nonsense and are here for strong, confident women filled with swagger with the skills to back it up. Let's make cockiness a positive term for women. Right? Let's do it. So despite having the backing of fans, media has never seemed fond of women in sports or soccer. Even though it's one of the biggest sports in the world. Yeah, I mean, that's not, that's not an exception. <laughs> a study done by USC and Purdue University found that most sports news or highlight shows are made up entirely of men's, story, men's sports stories to the tune of 95%. <laughs> Disgusting. Wow. The study's authors look specifically at three weeks of the sports primetime news between 6 p.m. to 11 p.m. ESPN's broadcast only covered 5.7% of women's sports. Local channels in L.A. were also surveyed, and they didn't fare any better, with 5.1% of the coverage being given to women. The lack of coverage is usually translated to lack of interest. This leaves women with the short stick, especially when you consider the larger picture for girls and women efforts to achieve equality, equal opportunities, resources, pay, and respect in sports. Yeah, and I bet, like... I don't remember what year that was, but like. Oh, so the study was between the study was uh, 2019, 2019. OK, mm-hmm. so because I, I was going to say, I wonder if that was a year like an Olympic year or not, because I feel like in mm-hmm. Olympic years, that's the only time that number goes up and it probably yeah. only goes up to like six percent or you yeah. know, <laughs> like it's terrible. Uh, The type of coverage is also important, right? The media often makes the case that male athletes should be tough and determined. Female athletes should be sexy and approachable. This is super clear in the pages of Sports Illustrated. I never want to be seen as approachable. Don't come to me. Don't talk to me. That's probably the worst thing you could be approachable. Ugh, no. Ben Wasyk of the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley, analyzed every cover through... 2016 of the Sports Illustrated and the ESPN magazines. And confirming earlier research, he found women are ridiculously underrepresented. When women were seen, they were sexualized. Think like the swimsuit edition. Mm -hmm. Uh, He discovered that women are likelier than men to be sexualized on sports magazine covers. I I don't know if I needed his research to tell me that, but thank you for confirming with data. Uh, what's more, this is true not only of the images themselves, but also the accompanying text, which tended to emphasize gender when portraying women while minimizing their athletic prowess. So basically, things are better than they were, but they're still kind of crappy. So like, what can we do about it? Right. You can call it out when you see it. You can go to Twitter or whatever Twitter becomes. You can <laughs> X. write X. I'm not calling it X. No, no, me way. either. It's it's Twitter until it's 
not a functioning site. So whatever. So you can write an email to your local station, ask for more coverage, or call them out when they're being sexist. You can watch more sports. You can attend live games if you can. You can even attend like a big game, big stadium match, or like a local small game. Either way, you're supporting women. And isn't that the whole point? For this section, we're going to focus on the isms and phobias. Sexism, racism, capitalism, homophobia, transphobia, Islamophobia, at least those in particular. But like, mm-hmm. before we get to that, let's talk about who goes to see these women's games in the first place. So a lot of people, apparently, um, when the women at Dick Kerr factory started playing way back in the day it was just in the form of a men versus women pickup game played during lunch breaks but it did so well that the team started attracting thousands of fans by 1920 and set an attendance record of 53,000 fans when they played against when they played against St. Helens Ladies Football Club and won 4 to 0 We mentioned some of the sexism in the history section, what with banning women from playing on the men's pitches and all of that. Um, But according to author Katie Mishner, the reason behind the ban, in England at least, was pretty simple. She states, it was due to the growing success of women's football. It posed a threat to the men's game. It wasn't the official line, of course. Instead, the FA claimed that soccer was unsuitable for women and that it should not be encouraged. But we all recognize this as more of the same policing of women's bodies that we see even today. There has always been an interest in women's sports. It's just that the popularity has been suppressed by organizations who saw it as more of a threat. In the 21st century, women's soccer has been growing both in popularity and participation. Visibility and support for women's professional soccer has increased around the globe. And remember, the FIFA Women's World Cup has only been around 32 years. That's less than me. Yeah. That feels gross. (laughs) I feel so old. (laughs) Well, it's not that you're old. It's that (laughs) soccer is not like... They haven't allowed it to be around in a true. You they know? haven't allowed it to age. <laughs> it needs to no be a one fine likes. Wine. As what to say? <laughs> well, champagne. no one likes an older woman. So, uh, all right. So let's talk about discrepancy in pay. What's the problem? Just as in other sports, the opportunities and financial compensation for professional women's athletes is lower than that of professional male athletes. For example, while the Women's World Cup winners get to take the trophy home with them, unlike the men's team, apparently, the prize for the winning women's team is just over $30 million. The winning men's team takes home approximately $400 million. Like, I was like, oh, $30 million. That's that's great. But not when you compare it to $400 million. $400 million? No, that's (laughs) insane. Like, what? Explain yourself. Like, that's insane. Okay. Well, in 2015, the Women's FA Cup winners prize was... 8,600 pounds or approximately $11,000. The same year, the winning men's team received 1.8 million pounds or $2.3 million with many of the teams who didn't even make it to the qualifying round receiving more than the winners of the women's team. So like the losers in the men's team got more money. So media coverage is also lower, which directly plays into the difference in pay without advertisers and sponsors there isn't much money to line the pockets of the owners so they give less to the players globally the soccer industry is maintained by big name sponsors you ever notice the name of the sponsors is way bigger than the name of the team on soccer jerseys i can think of like red bull mm-hmm. i don't even know the team it's whatever team david beckham was on was like something red bull and i just remember like a huge red bull jersey and i'm like i don't 
I don't know exactly. The name of this team. Exactly. <laughs> They're, They're all Red like Bull, that. <laughs> so anyway, because of these sponsors, top players get big salaries, at least for the men's team. It has long been common that women who play professional soccer will have to work a second job. Yeah, they need a side hustle, basically. Oh, <laughs> I I hate it so much. I hate it too. I hate it. Like, that's ridiculous to me. Like, pay somebody to do the job that you want them to do, and then they can focus on that. <sighs> and apparently, the FA only started paying a full-time salary to every woman in the league five years ago in 2018. <laughs> five years ago. Five years ago. What were they doing? Just, like, tips? Like, <laughs> were they working, like, like, like waiter at? Like, um, they pay them maybe, like per game and so when they weren't playing they didn't get paid i don't know i i i could not find them or something right that's that you know what that sounds about right this country oh it's not even just us but like this world has such a way of being like "Mm, i don't really want to pay you because i need yacht money and it's ridiculous i hate it okay well and they probably give less to the female coaches as well okay probably no definitely (laughs) Mm-hmm. Well, we don't have strict numbers for the financial side of things, we can say that female coaches continue to be underrepresented in many European women's leagues, even though the popularity of the sport continues to grow. In addition to compensation disparities with men's teams, there has also been insufficient pay to compete with other women's teams. Think travel costs, right? A lack of minimum standards in facilities, you know, upkeep, all of that stuff, paint jobs. And unfair treatment, especially by teams in the same league as men's teams. There have also been reports of systemic gender-related abuse of players, including league and federation officials ignoring sexual abuse allegations and a lack of benefits such as maternity leave and childcare. So let's talk about attendance again. So it's not like the fans aren't showing up for the for women's teams. They're there. I mean, even way back to that Dick Kerr League that we talked about before. A hundred years ago, all these fans were showing up and they're still showing up today. In 2022, on the final night of the Women's Euro Cup between England and Germany, over 87,000 people were in attendance at Wembley Stadium. And that, combined with television audiences, brought the total number of spectators up to over half a million people. Like, that's people substantial. are watching. <laughs> that's very substantial. Like, more people are watching that than, I don't know, some stupid guy thing. <laughs> I was trying to think of some, some stupid guy show. And I just thought of Everybody Loves Raymond. But like, I don't know. That was a popular show. Anyway, that same year, the FC Barcelona women's team had two games with over 91,000 people in attendance. One against Real Madrid and the other against Wolfsburg. But if we go back to 1971 with that pre-FIFA World Cup championship between Mexico and Denmark, there were, as we mentioned, over 110,000 people in attendance at the Azteca Stadium. As a point of comparison, right, because I was like, okay, that sounds like a lot to me, but like, how does that compare? The 2022 men's game between Argentina and Mexico had 88,966 people in attendance. The men have actually only had a handful of games with higher attendance than this 1971 Denmark Mex- Mexico Denmark game, with the highest being the 1950s World Cup final between Brazil and Uruguay with 199,854 fans in the stadium. So like 90,000 people more approximately. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's a ton of people. And it's Brazil and Uruguay, so they're, like, geographically close. So I think people were able to travel. Yeah. You know? Anyway. 
let's talk about discrimination because it's often intersectional. So let's take a look at some of the issues faced by BIPOC and the LGBTQIA plus players as well. So first off, let's talk about racism. Always a great place to start, right? <sighs> so there's a lack of diversity in parts of women's soccer, for sure. So for an example, in the 2022 Euros, England only had three non-white players and the U.S. 2019 World Cup team only had five non-white players out of 23. This year, they're up to 10. So getting that's better. Closer? It's like half-ish. Yeah. yeah. In 2017, British-Nigerian Aniola Aluko discussed the racism that she experienced through her career. In particular, the racism she faced from a former England manager, Mark Sampson. As a result of speaking up, she was moved. She was removed from the squad. Yeah, that seems Fun. like a... That's a great idea. I mean, that's usually pretty common. It is. You get rid of the squeaky wheel, right? I mean, when you think about like Me Too and Hollywood and all that, the reason Mm -hmm. why most women didn't speak up was because they'd get blacklisted and wouldn't be able to to do this. So like if this woman wants to play the sport that she has trained her whole life to play, there's a fear of speaking up. But I'm so glad she did speak up. Mm-hmm. Um, even U.S. soccer president Cindy Parlow Cohn has lamented that American soccer is seen as a, quote, rich white kids sport. Which doesn't make sense to me because I feel like it's got to be one of the cheaper sports to play. It, like, it's, you don't have to buy a ton of equipment. Right. So you don't have to buy a ton of equipment. But you like if you're going to play in a league or in for clubs that get like specific training and have scouting mm-hmm. and people that show up, then you're you're paying for the shin guards. You're probably paying for like access to the clubs. Like, yes, that's why Mm, we see it as a global sport because you can just play it in the dirt. Yeah. Yeah. But in terms of training people up in in the U S it's like, Oh, well I sent my kid to this soccer camp so that they could become, you know, and that's, Oh yeah. Anyway. And according to crystal Dunn, a player from the Portland thorns and a U and the U S national team, there are sometimes off-field duties required of the national squad, such as participating in professional photo shoots and public appearances. Now, you mentioned this earlier, like historically, but even today, right? Such events often include hair and makeup assistance for white players. Oh, mm. but with no guarantee that the stylist would know how to work with black skin or black hair. That's like a real problem. And we should do like an episode. I don't know how we would shoehorn that into an episode but i remember like a couple years ago um there were like talks about like not having people to do black hair and how it like affected people and halle berry was like that's why i kept my hair short in hollywood wow because there was no one to work on her hair so she had to keep her hair short because they would like fuck it up yeah and it makes sense because like black hair texture is very different and there are things that don't work like that work on white hair that don't work on black hair and if you don't have someone who knows how to do it, you can really, really mess it up or make it just look terrible. Absolutely. I always think about that with like kids shows, like Disney Channel shows of like when we grew up, like if there was a black person, like what did their hair look like? It was usually in braids or there was some terrible wig because there was some white lady who was just like, I don't know what to do with 4C hair. And it's it's a shame. <sighs> like just hire someone who knows how to do everything. There are black stylists who know how to work with white hair oh, as well. So. Hire black stylists? What? <laughs> Now you're now you're just getting too wild out there with your suggestions. <laughs> um, as Dunn goes on to state, those are things that a lot of people didn't ever have to think about because there weren't that many of us. But even if there's just one player, it's important that teams do think about these things, right? Like you said, yeah. a black stylist. What 
if if half your team, if one player on your team, it doesn't matter. If your whole team to one player have someone who knows what they're doing, mm-hmm. if you need that styling. At the college level, at least in the U.S., there has been some criticism of a promotion of systemic racism and wealth inequality in women's soccer. Female college soccer players are 70% white and are disproportionately upper middle class. And in the National Women's Soccer League, at least as of 2020, the coaches and executives were 98.9% white. That's disgusting. Is that like one person? Like what? It's got to be. How does that break down? (laughs) It's got to be. Well, yeah, I don't know. But let's say there were a thousand people Mm -hmm. that are coaches and executives. That would mean 11 of them were not white. And I really wonder what they consider like not white. Probably everything that's not like Anglo white, but I don't know for certain. It didn't say it didn't say like we're like one one point one percent were black or, you know, it's just ninety eight point nine percent white. Hmm. Gross. (laughs) It's not gross, (laughs) but it's like you could do better. It's gross in the fact that when your players like, okay, so now we're up to 10 on the women's national team Mm -hmm. that are black if your coaches and executives should be reflective of the the demographics of your players that's my perspective yeah no that makes sense um okay so let's talk about homophobia let's (laughs) let's (laughs) according to outsports there are at least 96 out lgbtqia plus athletes competing in the 2023 world cup and that there is an out athlete on at least 22 of the teams So that's 13% of all competing athletes at the World Cup this year. Almost all these athletes are from the Americas, Europe, and the host nations of Australia and New Zealand, where laws regarding LGBTQIA plus people are generally more favorable than Africa, Middle East, and parts of Asia. While it always hasn't been the case that there are many players out, leagues like the National Women's Soccer League in the U.S. have been historically progressive with teams participating in pride nights and queer positive endorsements over the years. It's not all sunshine and rainbows, pun intended. There's still homophobia among certain players on certain teams and in certain countries. The culture may be changing, but it's not there yet. Yeah. As for trans women, there has been some progress made on grassroots levels. For instance, Truck United is an all-trans women team from the UK. It's the first ever all-trans women squad. The team is not a part of the FA, but they have played other FA teams in friendlies. That's what we talked about before. There are matches without uh, ranking or consequences. A funsy. The funsies. A funsy. <laughs> what a missed opportunity to call it a funsy. But most talk of making soccer more trans-inclusive is met with conservative backlash. FIFA's rules currently state that only men are eligible to play in men's competitions and the same for women, which should make it pretty cut and dry. I mean, trans women are women, so they should be able to play in women's competitions. But of course, it's not that easy. Apparently, each participating member association within FIFA must, and this is a direct quote from the guidelines here, Prior to the nomination to the national team, ensure the correct gender of all the players to be considered by actively investigating any perceived deviation in secondary sex characteristics. Ew. Yeah. It feels like there's a magnifying glass involved, the way they're saying it, and I don't like it. It's, oh, yeah. No, that just, it makes my skin crawl. 
-hmm. In her book, I didn't even say half of it, former Swedish defender Nilla Fischer revealed that she and her teammates had to show their genitalia to the doctors at the 2011 World Cup after allegations that the Equatorial Guinea squad had male players. And just last year, in 2022, Zambia's captain Barbara Banda was ruled ineligible for the Africa Cup of Nations due to speculation of high testosterone levels. She was allowed to captain her national team at the World Cup this year, but has been the target of scrutiny since the incident. LGBTQIA plus advocates say the debate over transgender inclusion in women's sports has also made for an increasingly hostile environment for gender diverse people in North America. So let's let's continue our phobias. God, this is such a, a downer part, but like it's what's happening and it's terrible. So practitioners of Islam have also been targeted within the women's soccer community. In June 2011, Iran forfeited an Olympic qualification match in Jordan after trying to take the field in hijabs and full body suits. FIFA awarded Jordan with the 3-0 default winning score, stating that the Iranian uniforms or kits were an infringement of the laws of the game. This decision received much criticism, and in July of 2012, FIFA approved the wearing of hijabs in future matches. It's well, thank you so much <laughs> for allowing them to wear what the fuck they're already wearing. Like, <laughs> oh, God. Like, I don't understand how it would have taken away from the game. Like, mm -hmm. it's not like it's wrestling where you have something to grab onto or something. Like, I it's don't understand. something like, that's appropriate to these women and mm -hmm. who they are. I, it reminds me of the... Remember the swim caps that we talked about way back? Oh, yeah. Right? And they were like, oh, well, these swim caps are different. So this is going to give them an advantage. No, that first of all, that was probably capitalism. And like Nike wanted a full <laughs> control over that. But still, it was this idea of like your Nike body. Nike could have just made those caps then. Yep. Right. Your body is different. So mm -hmm. we have to penalize you for some reason. Yes. Or your beliefs are different. So we have to penalize you for some reason. And that's nonsense. No. So this wasn't the first time that a women's uniform has been brought up under scrutiny by FIFA. Back in 2004, when FIFA president Shep Blat Blatter? Sep Blatter? <laughs> Shep Blatter. What a name. Gross. It feels like he's a sheep. I don't like it. <clears throat> like haggis? Instead of a I stomach? Guess. Instead of a yeah. stomach, it's a bladder? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's rude. It's his name. It's not it his is, fault. I know. We'll cut it out. We don't, we don't need to let Shep know we made fun of him. Um, or Sep. Sep. Yeah. It's a lot of peace to pop. Back in 2004, when FIFA, then FIFA president Shep Blatter suggested that instead of jerseys, shorts, and cleats and knee-length socks over shin guards, the women should instead wear tighter shorts and lower-cut shirts to create a more feminine aesthetic with the hope of attracting more male fans. You know what? Leave it in that I made fun of his name. <laughs> Leave it in. He's a jerk. He's a sexist jerk who doesn't deserve respect with a stupid name like Shep Blatter. Yeah, and he literally said the quiet part out loud. Mm-hmm. Like, literally. He's like, hey, we can get more guys to watch if we dress the girls up sexy, right? Again, it's giving me the league of their own where it's like, oh, yeah. let's put them in skirts. That's appropriate for playing baseball. Yeah, let's yeah. have low-cut shirts. <sighs> Listen, some things are more important, like looking at tits. <laughs> okay. But, no, but for real, let's, let's try and end the section on maybe a fun fact, right? Mm -hmm. In 2002, Lily Parr of the Dick Kerr's Ladies was the first woman to be inducted into the National Football Museum Hall of Fame. 
they also made a statue of part that's in front of the museum. So that's pretty cool. I mean, it took until 2002, but mm, still pretty cool. So the FAA did eventually issue an apology for, you know, banning women's soccer for all those years. It was issued in 2008, you know, a mere 87 years after they issued the ban, but better late than never, right? Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> Okay, so let's talk about the impact, particularly like the damage, right? Um, let's look at the lack of airtime. Not only does minimal airtime deprive young girls of athletic role models, the manner in which women athletes are presented affects how people value their sports and their contributions to society. The way the media handles women's sports can change the way people think about their legitimacy. If it's not even worth mentioning on the ESPN highlight show, is it worth watching? I mean, the answer is yes, but like... Why would people think that? Why would you? Yeah, exactly. Why would you bother if like this is what you're being told? That study that we spoke about earlier was done by Cheryl Cokie, a professor at Purdue University who had a TED talk about this very subject and idea. She said women's coverage is absent largely of the elements that we know make watching sports highlights compelling and interesting, exciting commentary, colorful, descriptive and animated delivery and thoughtful, high-production-value interviews and game footage. When you compare women's coverage to men's, the women's comes off as quite bland. She goes on to say the media creates demand as much as it meets it. The goal isn't just to sell more women's sports. She speaks of the consequences, and the asymmetrical representation between men's and women's sports are more invasive. For example, because men's sports are given steady airtime, there is time to showcase their charitable contributions. Women aren't given the same platform for their sports or their philanthropy. Women aren't given time to show off their skills, leading people to think girls' sports are easy. You miss the training and the dedication brought to the sport when you half-ass coverage. When girls see female athletes overcoming adversity and challenging stereotypes in sports, they are more likely to believe in their own potential and abilities and their fundamental right to be equal everywhere. Girls need role models, and they aren't one size fits all. We want girls to be exactly who they are. Today, girls can be fierce and loud or passionate and outspoken. Role models like Megan Rapinoe, Alex Morgan, and Crystal Dunn and others are loud and proud of exactly who they are. They speak up and they speak out. They are a group of women who will not who will not fit into an easily defined box. And we should all strive for this. And if you want to know more about Megan Rapinoe, we're going to cover her in our little rep for next week. Mm-hmm. Uh, These teams working together are the best form of female friendship. Female friendship can be enormously powerful source of comfort, strength, and empowerment, especially when women are usually pitted against each other. Whether they're comforting one another, pushing one another to be the best, or celebrating together, young girls can see the beauty of what is possible when women believe in and stand by each other. If we want to keep this world of women's soccer going, we need to keep recruiting. That can be done with exposure. Female representation is so important for girls now and for the future. Let's talk about the health benefits of playing a sport. So high school girls who play a sport are much are less likely to be involved in unintended pregnancy, more likely to get better grades in school and more likely to graduate than girls who don't play a sport. Girls and women who play sports have higher levels of confidence and self-esteem and lower levels of depression. Girls and women who play sports have more positive body image and experience higher stakes of psychological well-being than girls and women who do not play sports. Although I do want to have a caveat here is that we do have to watch out for like some sports that might lead to things like eating disorders because of size 
restraints, things mm. like gymnastics, running. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, I read a great book and I can't think of the title right now, but when I come up with it, I'll share it um, about a woman who ran and how she ran through elementary school. She was the fastest runner. And then when she got to high school, and went through puberty. Her running time like dipped really low and she thought, oh, I'm not mm. going to make it. And she struggled with like, like, do I restrict my eating? Do I, you know, and so mm. it can lead to some of these things to, to maintain a smaller frame. But overall, I think this is absolutely accurate that there are more positive body images because you can see the different, that different kinds of bodies are okay in sports. Yeah. I feel like when I've seen like women in sports, like they're never like that, like it, it, they're never like rail thin and they don't seem to be upset with that. I feel like there's an idea of like, well, my body can kick a ball nine miles away. I'm I'm doing well. Right. You know, like there's not a there's not a, a fixation on like how much I weigh because they know that their body is strong enough to do the things that it needs to do on the field. So they're not so worried about like, but I'm not a size two. I think that's know, like, accurate for team sports yeah. like soccer and stuff. You know, I just I was like thinking softball, of this, yeah. this this running book that I read and she's like mm, eating yes. disorders are a huge thing in the running community. So Yeah. I was thinking more like team sports. Yeah, like whenever absolutely. I've seen like people like on a softball team or like women's rugby like they're never that's not what it's size about zeros yeah and they don't care to be that size because it's like look what my body does yeah like, who cares like if i'm not the ideal size for you mm -hmm. exactly yeah. it's been proven that when women and girls have access to team sports they're able to cultivate critical skills confidence leadership and problem solving things that also serve them well in their personal and professional lives finally soccer is just cool with over 4 billion followers, it's one of the most watched sports on the planet, with viewers from Europe, South America, Asia, and many other places. Why would you not want to be a part of that? A 2006 high school sports-related injury surveillance study sponsored by the CDC demonstrated that soccer players had almost half the injury rate as those playing football. I mean, that might be looking at men's numbers, but still, like, mm. it definitely speaks to the safety of the sport relative to some other sports. Exactly. And we love a safe sport. So soccer is easy to start playing. There isn't a ton of equipment to buy, uh, meaning everybody can play. Rich or poor, soccer makes for a diverse team, hopefully. Yeah. In the future. We're getting there. Everyone can play it at, like, when they're a kid, yeah. for sure. But I think the yeah. access when you get older is is what we want to challenge, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you're moving onto like a professional team, it might be a little bit harder. But like it's very easy to start soccer when you're younger. All right. So final thoughts, takeaways. What do you got? I think that it's just really interesting to see how far the game has come and like how much damage the media can do. Because I was definitely one of those people who are like, no one watches women's sports because women's sports is boring because that's what like the media has been peddling for years. But people love women's soccer, but like you only hear jokes about how boring it can be and like they don't have any advertisers and that's why they don't get paid anything. But it's not that way. It's just like the narrative that people have been pushing as an excuse to like pay women less. And it's bullshit. Totally. Um, my softball team we go to a bar after our game sometimes. Well, basically after every game. Um, and our last game, or the one before, I can't remember exactly, but one of the recent games we played afterward, like we usually sit outside and mm -hmm. a bunch of the team 
was suddenly gone and I was like, where did they all go? I went inside and they were all watching the World Cup game, the, the women playing. And so, yeah, like women are watching and they're watching in bars mm -hmm. and they're watching at home and they're watching in the stadium. Like there's an audience. Yeah. You know, I kept making references throughout like to a league of their own because that's what I grew up with. Like I love the movie mm -hmm. and I enjoyed the TV show adaptation that came out last year. Uh, but after doing this research, I think that it would be really cool to do like a soccer version of it. Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, it was the same shit, different time, different country. Uh, but what's cool about women's soccer is that at the professional level, at least, it seems to be a lot more mainstream than women's baseball or even softball is. So like when the strike's over, I need someone to pitch this idea. Pitch it. <laughs> get it. Like soccer field. Yeah. Ooh. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so let's get into some of our resources. Uh, the History of Women's Football by Jean Williams. National Team, The Inside Story of the Women Who Changed Soccer by, by Caitlin Murray. Unsuitable for Females by Carrie Dunn. The Rise, Fall, and Rise of Women's Football by Jake Hall. Soccer Goes Sexy South of the Border, A History of Misogyny and Women's Soccer Coverage by Travis Yosting. Sports Magazine Covers Sexualized Female Athletes by Tom Jacobs. The Forgotten History of Women's Football, which is uh, something you can watch on YouTube. And at least 96 out LGBTQ athletes competing in the 2023 Women's World Cup. A record. <laughs> we have to include one every... <laughs> oh my god. That's by OutSports. So let us know what you thought of this episode. Do you have anything to add to the conversation that we might have left out? Do you have any suggestions for topics we should cover in the future? Follow the podcast on Twitter at BigRepPod and Instagram and TikTok at BigReputationsPod. Send us a message or email us at BigReputationsPod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Share us with your friends, your family, and your teammates. Subscribe and leave a five-star review. Check out our Big Reputations merch. The link is in the show notes as well as in our Linktree link found on all our social media platforms. Be sure to take a picture and tag us when you make a purchase. And remember, we've got a Patreon now. Patreon.com slash BigReputationsPod, or just check out the link in our Linktree. Whether you pledge 2 or $5, you'll get shoutouts in our episodes. And if you choose a $5 level, you'll have exclusive access to our Little Reputations episodes. Short mini episodes about amazing women throughout history. Next up, Megan Rapinoe. Stick around after the episode where we'll share a teaser from that Little Rep episode. All right, Kim, how about a quote for our 50th episode? So this quote's from a man, boo, but it's valid. Football is all very well as a game for rough girls, but it's hardly suitable for delicate boys. And that was said by Oscar Wilde. I love it. That, I'll, right? We'll take a quote from a man for this one. <laughs> exactly. And as always, believe women. So we don't have the exact number, but the rumor is that Megan has the highest number of yellow cards for removing her shirt during a game. So a yellow card is basically like a warning as opposed to a red card, which can have a player removed from the field or even kicked out of the game. Yeah, and, and this shirt rule, right, we talked about it in our big rep. Um, it didn't exist until 2004, and rumor has it that the conversation around this stemmed from when Brandy Chastain removed her shirt during the 1999 World Cup.